This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to, well, we love the Wall Street Journal. And periodically, we run down stories they do and bring the folks on the air. And today's story is Deconstructing the IKEA Dresser Recall. And it was written by Abby Schachter, a mother of four children in Pittsburgh, a contributor at Reason.com, among many other publications, and the author of a new book, No Child Left Alone, Getting the Government Out of Parenting. I love the title. And Abby, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You bet. Before we get into the IKEA recall, do you or have you ever owned IKEA furniture? And talk about the real value the company has brought to the vast majority of Americans who are trying to make ends meet. Um, Yeah, the answer is yes. Um, uh, We own several pieces of IKEA furniture, and we love IKEA. Um, We've bought children's furniture, furniture for um, living room um, around our house, and the real value is that it's wonderful stuff that doesn't cost very much. And you can actually, it's well designed, or it's well, it looks great, and, um, and it's affordable. Yep. which is really um, both, both important values, and certainly for a family of, of six, as ours is. And, um, yeah, so we've enjoyed the furniture and, in fact, uh, enjoy still uh, some of the furniture that's now been recalled. Right. So you have experience with this actual furniture, and i got to add to it that it's such, a, it, it's such a pleasure to go to IKEA's. The service is great. The space is great. My only criticism is you get lost in a key. You can't get out. Once you're in there, you cannot get out. Um, well, that's, that's part of the design, right? They of course. They want you to buy more. So if you can't get out, you'll, you'll spend more money. It is a labyrinth, though. I mean, there's no question. You get in there, and you've you, you got to be good to find the exit. So why is IKEA in the news? Um, so IKEA is in the news because uh, they have now recalled. This is the largest recall in history uh, for 36 million dressers. Um, of varying styles, but uh, the, the, the real culprit is this one style of dresser called Malm. Um, and um, essentially, it's based off of um, several tragic incidents where children who were climbing on the dressers um, pulled them onto themselves and were killed. Um, three cases in 2014 and 2015. And there's a group called the Consumer Product Safety Commission. This is a gigantic recall. And by the way, the the death of any child is an absolute tragedy. Um, But talk about what happened next. Why is a recall this scale? What is the cost of a recall like this? And is it going to help prevent uh, any future deaths? This is the big question. Right. Well, I mean, the... um The Consumer Product Safety Commission was established in the 1970s with a mandate to say we're going to protect consumers from unreasonable risks of uh, injury and death. So um, the problem today is that 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 definition has been broadened and expanded. So here in this case, you had these tragic, terrible accidents. but in these cases, the children uh, were using the furniture improperly, right? The furniture, they're dressers, they're meant to hold, to store clothes, and instead they were climbing on them. So um, the government basically said, um, if any child dies as a result of your product, it's unacceptable, it's a, it's a too great a risk 
of injury and death to have them in circulation in America ever at all. So the company is going to now spend millions and upon millions of dollars to um, replace for free any dresser, essentially, that IKEA has produced in the past, um, regardless of whether the dresser in question caused these, these accidents and caused these deaths, and regardless of whether there's an, um, a foreseeable risk. Um, in this case, the real, um, one of the sort of details that gets lost is that there were warning labels uh, with the instructions on these dressers that you're supposed to attach them to the wall. And um, the warning labels were not heated, right? People just uh, put them together, put the dresser together, and just set it up in a room. Um, and having not done the thing that IKEA actually told them to do, which is anchor it to the wall, these accidents occurred. But for the government, that um, is sort of an irrelevant fact. And they would rather um, threaten a business like IKEA uh, in the name of an un, a sort of a, an, an impossible standard of safety. Yeah, I mean, they go from unreasonable risk to almost no risk. And right. it's outrageous. Yeah, I mean, this is something that um, the Consumer Product Safety Commission has actually gotten very good at. Um, the IKEA, I wrote about IKEA because it's such a huge recall. But in fact, they've spent. Um, uh, decades now going after all kinds of products, toys, and games. And often, if you look at their website for why they're recalling products, there's been no injury. Um, there's been no, they, 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 they are recalling products based off of a potential risk, but not one that's actually happened. Yeah, and, and what's also interesting about this agency is when somebody or anybody has the temerity to fight back, they can face personal fines as well, as was the case with uh, Mr. Zucker, Craig Zucker. Correct. Um, uh, th there was a case where um, a business couldn't withstand, his business could not withstand the attack by the Consumer Product Safety Commission. He created a toy that wasn't even meant for children. It was an adult desk toy. He sold millions of them. It was a very successful product. And um, he actually had worked with the government to try and solve the warning label problem. And they still attacked him and killed his business. Well, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we are talking to Abby Schachter, a mother of four, a writer at Reason.com, which we adore, and the author of a new book, No Child Left Alone, Getting the Government Out of Parenting. We initially caught her in the Wall Street Journal in a column on the IKEA dresser recall. We're going to talk about why IKEA caved and spent all that money. And by the way, who pays when IKEA caves? This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're talking to Abby Schachter, 
a mother of four in Pittsburgh, a contributor at Reason.com, among many other publications, and the author of a new book, No Child Left Alone, the government, get, getting the government out of parenting. And thanks again for joining us, Abby. Sure thing. So why didn't IKEA fight this? Why did they capitulate? And wh- what are the costs to all of us? When IKEA does this kind of thing, who pays? Yeah, so um, I think that IKEA did this because in the battle between their their PR considerations, right, the impact of these horrible stories of deaths by IKEA furniture versus um, the cost of recall, they could sustain, they could sort of... Um, they could manage the cost of recalling the furniture and providing millions of dressers and furniture for free to to consumers because the opposite, the alternative of um, trying to fight a, a PR war um, would have hurt them more. Yeah. So they did a cost-benefit analysis and they said, look, it's, it's, it's much easier for us to absorb these costs than try and you know, and we'll look good because we're trying to get in front of the problem. Yeah. Um, but but most businesses do not have the scale or the size to be able to do that. And even if they do, what ends up happening is that the products, the costs from making the products goes up. So we end up getting hit because you want to buy this stuff. Well, it's going to cost you more now because... They've had to change it. They've had to redesign it. They've had to, yep. uh, you know, recall it and replace it. So in the end, it's brand protection for IKEA. And in the case of Mr. Zucker's firm, Buckyballs, again, a, a product that was designed for adults that kids just happen to use, it put him out of business. That's right. And he was, he was, and it was an unprecedented attack on him in the case, in his case, because the Consumer Product Safety Commission sued him as an individual. They didn't just sue his company, which which uh, died. He, they then sued him because his the company that produced um, produced the toy had closed and gone into bankruptcy. So they sued him for sixty million dollars. Um, and really, I think if you um, having looked at the record, I think that um, much of what happened because he went on television. He actually tried to fight the government. And he went on TV and he said that um, st- it's statistically insignificant, the risk of injury, based on the number of kids that had been injured by his product and how many he had sold. Um, and I think that really threw um, the government on its heels and they said, well, we're not going to stand for this. Yeah, and how so dare they really he? went out with him. How dare he? Yeah, exactly. And, and the, consumer product, product. the Consumer Product Safety Commission, well, we'll talk about how they're starting to actually exceed their mission and how this mission creep well this is a function of most government bureaucracies yeah i mean i i wrote this book no child left alone to sort of look at all the areas of life in which um, the government's making standards and regulations in the place of parents and uh, the consumer product safety commission is basically conducting what i call a war on fun because uh, they um, tend to go after toys and games and uh, things like dressers, as we've discussed, that have to do with children. And they, um, they essentially say, we are, um, we are in charge of deciding what is safe. 
and what is healthy. And they produce, amongst other things, these recall notices, and they also produce pages and pages of rules for playgrounds. So um, if you notice, you go across America, playgrounds really look alike. I mean, they're designed now by a set of federal standards, um, and they may look good, and they may be safe, according to the government, but boy, they're no fun. No, they are not fun, and now I know why they do all look alike. And you've also went ahead and called the government the world's worst worst helicopter parent. Um, Give me a few more examples in your book about how they're trying to basically ban fun or codify risky behavior such that they try and drive all risk out of human life, which, of course, we know is absolutely absurd. Boys, girls, they're going to still take the risks. Right, right. So, I mean, in the case of, of games and things like that, um, you have, you have you know, games that have basically banned. Um, then you have um, games and sports that get uh, banned. Like uh, uh, last winter, there was an increase in the number of cities that had banned sledding. Um, for summer fun, there are lots of playgrounds um, nowadays that ban running. Uh, on the playground, because that might not be safe. There are a lot of schools that have cut down on the amount of recess. And even when they have recess, they do a lot of coaching of recess, and they control schools, and school districts have tried to control what games children are allowed to play. Um, and they're actually parents. Uh, this, this last week I was reading a story in USA Today about parents who are fighting for more recess in Florida. And they've got a Facebook page of like 5,500 parents who um, are really have discovered that Uncle Sam is so overprotective that their kids can't um, run around on, you know, uh, at school for for longer than 10 minutes a day. And they're saying, "Um, we're fed up. Yeah, and I think you're going to see this backlash. I mean, it's going to be mom. And by the way, don't get in the way of a group of organized moms. Because they, there, there will be vengeance. You know, we are, my, my wife is one of those moms. We like calculated risk. Heck, my little girl has taken to riding 16 and a half hand horses and jumping them. There isn't any more risky activity. We know that. We're afraid one day some division of youth and services or bureaucrat type is going to lock us up. We already get that strained look from some parents. How could you do that? Hey, shut up. I didn't ask you. It's my kid. Yes. Well, that's, well so your wife is a captain mommy and i i've defined this term um she's a captain mommy and every mom uh and every dad like her and like you are captain moms a captain mommies and captain daddies for this exact thing they're turning against this idea that their kids should be steel wooled or should be you know wrapped in cotton and they're saying to the government it's my choice I want to decide. It's my authority, right? There's no public health risk if your kid rides horses. And if you're going to decide to let your kid jump horses, fantastic, right? And no, it's nobody else's. You know what they're going to argue? They're going to argue that if something happens to my kid and they happen to be on public insurance, health insurance, that that is a cost to all of us. And the next thing you know, they're going to make some public pronouncement that it's not only good for society, but it's good for my kid. And I don't know what's good for my kid, but they know better. That's exactly right, and we and um, I think that the problem goes even 
further when you get into looking at child protective services and uh, and even uh, certain police departments where they basically say you know um, we're going to decide if you should be allowed to leave your kid in a car for five minutes to run an errand we're going to decide that um, you know what older kids are not allowed to babysit younger kids and we're going to take the kids from the parents um, we're going to decide that um, even when the parents are with the kids um, I read about a guy in Connecticut who went to take his teenage sons um, to the frozen Susquehanna River you know they were going they were they were basically looking um, they were they were there to stand on the riverbanks and just watch the river and and see this wonderful winter scene and these fire trucks and police cars showed up and um, started berating this dad um, and threatening him with arrest and he's lucky because there are plenty of parents who aren't as lucky and have been arrested for letting their kids have some independence well, and a mom in Connecticut you write about was charged with risk of injury to a minor when she allowed her 7-year-old and 11-year-old to buy pizza unsupervised. By the way, I've been doing this with my, with my kid since she was 6. I give her money. I go go into that store and go do something. And right. she does it. She now knows what money is. Now sometimes she takes her own money. I take her and I let her go into department stores. And I park in the front and I read a newspaper. Yeah, my six-year-old asked us when she and her sister, her older sister, could walk to the playground. And uh, in truth, I turned to my husband and we looked at each other and thought, you know, we might be perfectly ready to let her go, but I'm not so sure that somebody isn't going to call the police. <laughs> That's right. And it's, 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 uh, it's, it's nuts. And we love what you wrote. And we'd love to have you back uh, just to talk about the book. It's exactly up our alley. It's a subject we're hitting and hitting again and again. And if you, right. want, if you want to protect your kid and wrap him up in, in cloth and pillows, God bless. I'm not here to tell you what to do. But exactly. don't impose your vi- will on my children. And more and more of these helicopter parents are cozying up with a helicopter government to tell me what to do with my own child. We appreciate your work, Abby Schachter. Mother of four in Pittsburgh, a contributor at Reason.com, and her new book, No Child Left Alone, Getting the Government Out of Parenting. Thank you, Abby. Thank you so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch all of our storytelling. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment with Deb Walniak. Last week, Deb brought us a powerful interview with two women, Cindy Snyder-Ray and Pam Paquette, who both have chronic illnesses, as do some of their children. This week, we wanted to do a follow-up interview with Cindy's husband, Tony, and his very different experience with chronic illness as a family member who doesn't have it, and how to be supportive when he doesn't know how it feels. And often, he can't even know through his bride's facial expressions whether she's in pain. And I know this personally. My wife suffers from chronic pain. 
and I know that millions of others do. And Deb, thanks so much for joining us and bringing this to our attention. Thanks for having me. You know, last week you brought us the really powerful interview with two women, and that was with Cindy and Pam and their chronic illnesses. And this week uh, we go to a conversation with Tony Ray and Cindy at the very end of the conversation. And this is, Deb, this is a, this is a superb piece, and let's take a listen together. Do you have other guys that come up to you and go, how are you handling this? For me, as I was working and knowing what was going on at home, I really didn't have a clue. And, you know, I was the provider. I did my thing and I got my identity for my job. And, and that's, that's where I got, you know, that's where my success was. And there was a lot of things going on at home that I just didn't have a clue. And it's uh, the, the one thing that, that has been very interesting is, and it's been a journey is, as I've seen, as I've been home, and I see what they're going through, there's times when it's, they look fine. And I think, okay, what's, you, you look okay. So what's, what's going on? And they don't always have the words to describe what's going on either. But I, I've questioned it a lot of times myself, and I live here with them, and I see it. But it's like, you seem okay. So on the outside, Cindy could be having a great day. And inside, she's learned to live with the pain and to, to kind of mask it. And so trying to describe that to people is very, very challenging and difficult at times. It's hard because I'm, I'm also trying to step into your world, and we just can't even imagine um, the level of physical pain, the level of financial challenge, and then the, the efforts you both are putting in uh, to your marriage and trying to stay connected. I guess that sense of normalcy is something that um, you both strive for, but with also an eye to reality. Is that right? Am I catching that? Yeah, you said it. You said it very well. I mean, it's it's trying to. I mean, it, you got to grasp at the fact that things have changed, and the life you used to have is is not there anymore. And certain things are taken away. And, you know, the people you love most, you, you see the pain and anguish on them. And it's, it's now trying to get to a new normal. And I've made this comment to people before about, you know, we're, we're doing better. We've kind of arrived at a new normal as a family. And when I say that, it's like it's, a, it's an ongoing journey. It never becomes normal. It's just a different way of doing life together. And it's, it's a big change. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that we're in it together is is probably the biggest blessing. Mm. And that is a big thing because so many of, you know, so many of us, well, of course, we all age and we get into our senior years and we then discover chronic pain sometimes in our later years. And we feel like people can't relate to us. All of a sudden, yes, there's that grief and loss piece that, that you have to kind of go through in this letting go process. Um, do you think people need to be afraid of that? Well, I don't, boy, that's a great question. I don't know that they need to be afraid of it, but because it's, it's part of, it's part of what life is. And I think Cindy and I definitely have gotten to the point where we're, we're starting to look at the, the illness and the pain and the struggles and the mess that it is and seeing that, you know, glimpses of that's where God does his best work. And it's our faith that keeps us kind of moving forward. 
And sometimes we take a step backwards, but um, understanding that has been has been a big blessing. And I think it's for us, it's it's kept us continuing to move forward. Um, so there's there will be fear from people who maybe aren't on this journey yet, or they're just entering it. The fear is going to be there, and even for us, it's you know it, it's out there. But we've learned to because we've been at it for a while to, to manage it and manage it through our faith and, and together. So I'm going to challenge both of you on something and whoever wants to go first is fine. Let the other person know um, either how much you appreciate them or give them a compliment. Um, something after all this journey from the time that you were at the altar through all these different chapters and ups and downs and pain, Give the other person either a compliment or something that you appreciate about them. Um, I can go first. Um, I have appreciated and been blessed by Tony's strength and integrity um, through all of these years for the level of commitment that he has made not only to me but to our family. Um, He is a good man, probably the best man that I have ever met. Um, and the one that I love most in this world. I cannot imagine having gone through this or being on this journey without him. Well, so mine would be the thing I most appreciate about Cindy is is just her perseverance um, as she's gone through this. I just, I, I still marvel at the, the level of pain that she has, and she continues to just move forward, and she's been an example to me. And for 20-some years, it's been about me and my job, and, and I didn't see that for, for many years. And now that I do and I look back on it, I look at this beautiful woman and thank, and, and thank you. And I thank her for her being patient with me um, because she was carrying a lot of the load, and now it's my turn. And this ministry is just a huge blessing, and to see her and Pamela do this is, is just, I mean, it's beautiful. And I see her light up now because she's able to do something to help others and be part of it. And all the help that she's done in the family now, she can, you know, she can do that for other people and I can be part of it. And that is just, uh, well, that's too much to hear. It's uh, so powerful. And, uh, you know, Deb, that's got, I mean, it's almost bringing me to tears, her describing her husband and then him describing her, and you wish people would do this more in public and more often for one another. But talk about that, Deb, and just how it, how it moves you to keep going. It's got to really be inspirational at some point, listening to people like this, Deb. It is, it is. Um, you know how sometimes you look at a beautiful piece of artwork, and you have to like look into the depth of it, and you see the strength of the colors, and then as you continue to look, you see various different tones of, let's say, a color green that you didn't see before. So much of marriage is like that. So many times when we start out our marriage, we're like, okay, you know, we're on our honeymoon, we're doing awesome, we're hanging in there, we're building for a future, and you're totally nesting, and you're doing everything right. And one of those days, sometimes either the lull sets in or the tragedy, that explosive stage of something that you don't even expect to happen, and it does. These are couples, like we just heard, that have gone through the depths of frustration, not only financially, but physically with an ailment that will never leave them. And yet 
they have this inner strength that blows my mind, and I see what they have worked on over many years, and they stuck together throughout, and even in this retirement stage that they're currently at, and believe me, retirement for them is not slowing down. It's continually serving the children that they have that need continual medical support. This, to them, is their life's mission, and they want to continue to serve and help others. This is the most amazing thing about love and true love is it not only sees the other person for who they are, but they continue to encourage and strengthen and build the other person up so that other people around them say, I want that. You bet. And how did you, how did you get through that? I yeah. want to know and what they're doing. Yeah, and I want to be that. In the end, I want to be that. I mean, you lead in the end by example. We know this always. And my goodness, these kids are lucky. That's all I can tell you. This is Lee Habib. Marriage on the Mind with Deb Olniak. Chronic illness, chronic pain, how it affects marriages. More with Deb after these messages. having gone through this or being on this journey without him. I look at this beautiful woman and think, and, and thank you. And I thank her for her being patient with me. And you're listening to Cindy Snyder Ray and her husband, Tony. Cindy stricken with chronic pain and chronic illness. Tony just working, going about his life and not really appreciating what his wife had gone through. It had effects on the marriage. Of course, anyone who's lived with chronic pain, a mate, a spouse, knows, a mother. You know, we're going to be doing a segment on Bernie Marcus. His, his mother suffered from intense arthritic pain, and it's lived with Bernie his whole life. In fact, you go to Atlanta, you'll hear about the Shepherd Pain Center, and Bernie will tell anyone he met that half of what fueled his desire to be able to earn the money he earned was to be able to at least take care of other, other moms and not have the children see the mom in chronic pain. So very personal for me as well. know a lot of people who suffer from this. And Deb, thanks so much for doing this, really. And, and talk, let's talk a little bit about how this has affected you, Deb. And we, you know, we're always talking about other people. But you know, you're, you're facing people in tough consequences and circumstances almost all the time. Uh, and that is that people don't generally seek marriage help. And obviously, you're a coach. You're not a counselor. So you're not waiting for the crisis. But you live through a lot of crises, Deb. One of my best friends is a pastor in town, and I always see the stress and the burden that being such a leader, an emotional leader and a spiritual leader, uh, takes uh, what the toll it takes. Uh, talk about just you for a second. And I don't, not that I want to make you the spotlight of this, but it, it just interests me on a, on a personal level, Deb, um, the, the toll it takes on you and what you do for uh, sustenance as you, as you try to be a, a strength and a resource for so many couples who seek your guidance? Mm, that is a great question. Sometimes I move so quickly I don't like pay attention to myself and be brutally honest with you. And it's been a three-year journey already. And recently I took a vacation to not vacation. Does that make any sense? It does. <laughs> I literally had no plans. I told my husband, this is, I don't need to go anywhere. I just need to stop because I've been moving for three years and carrying a lot of the burdens that people 
bring to us and trying to direct them, network, get them to better spots, get them into our mentoring program. And I haven't stopped. And I literally found myself in the garden one day, just, okay, I'm just going to work on this. And suddenly just started bawling. I mean, it came out of nowhere. And I'm like, what is going, but I have to listen to my heart. I have to listen to my spirit. And that was that outlet. I've been carrying that burden for so long. It was time to let that go and just be free. And it was a great moment. I so appreciate that. That happened in a couple different ways, and that's totally normal for people who deal with jobs that have that level of stress. I mean, I think of medical, police, fire, even our military folks that are on, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the mom or dads that are working the home front while their spouse or significant other is deployed. These are all heavy burdens that we're bearing. And even I let people know that one thing I took away from that is I got to give myself some space, not three years from now, but on a regular basis, even if it's doing a breathing technique for 15 minutes where I shut off the phone, shut the door, and just breathe. That is going to be important for longevity. Same thing with relationships. How then in your current situation are you applying some of the techniques that are going to make you stronger as a couple stronger as an individual in order to continue serving, especially those with long-term disabilities or chronic pain. You bet. And and how how does this affect your marriage, Deb? I mean, I know, the, the, again, the pastor friend of mine, I have another who runs a big detective uh, squad in, in New York City, and it never stops for him. And right. I've, watched, I've watched good friends, you know, as serving others, almost lose themselves and their own marriage. And boy, there yeah. would be nothing worse than a marriage coach ultimately yeah. having marriage problems. But I, hey, well, look, you're not, you're not immune to ra- reality and real life. Just talk about that, Deb. Absolutely, 100%. I'm an open book. If anyone asked, wants to ask me any questions about this, I'll pretty much tell them like it is. My husband works for a group called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. They're an interdenominational group on campuses around the world, and he helps manage 52 different college campuses. His travel schedule is pretty intense, and of course, in his case, He is in a ministry. And so what does that do? That takes coordination and family schedule. We operate a little bit like a military family because we know someone's always at the home front. We have children 15 and 17 years old. Everybody knows who has teenagers. That's like the thick of it. You've got to be present for those teenagers and to be able to work through issues that come up. It could come up today at, you know, an hour from now, and I won't even expect it. So one of the things we have is a flexible schedule, which we're very thankful for. And we have teams around us that know that we need some of that flexibility. So we always manage a schedule at home, et cetera. But what comes down to is not just a business decision. It has to be also we support each other in each other's roles. And we also have to stop and see how we're doing. How are you doing? I'm feeling pressure on this end. I'm working on the finances. We haven't talked about this. Let's stop and talk. So to make those very specific, purposeful appointments where we're engaging on home business and then with each other, those date nights are so critical. And I will tell you, Cindy and Tony have those, even with the heavy medical schedule that they've been carrying. If you can do a date night or a date time, even for 30 minutes, I know it sounds crazy. It may be in the morning for some of those that are coming off a third shift. It may be for lunch. It may be after the children go to bed, but you need to have a face-to-face conversation 
eyeball to eyeball, even knee to knee holding hands and looking at each other and just saying, I had a tough day, but I, I just want you to know I love you. I had a tough day too, but I love you too. But can we talk about this? Get that conversation going. And even the little that you invest in, even the 15 to 30 minutes will not come back void. It will come back with fruit. If there's something that you have parking lot topic, you know, like it's so big that we may not be able to solve it in one night, let's write it down on a piece of paper, put it up on the fridge or maybe in a special book that we read, or maybe if you're a faith, a Bible or some scripture that you look at, just put it in there and keep that topic at the forefront because you do need to come after that and follow through. Otherwise, guess what happens? Things build up, the pressure cooker goes off, and all of a sudden we're in an explosion phase. And no one wants that. We want to be able to try to piecemeal this through because life happens. It happens. The question is, are you awake and are you working on it day-to-day with your spouse as a team, not against each other, but as a team, and that takes time, study, communication, and love, because there's sometimes when a spouse can't be present, and it's, you know what, if it's because of chronic pain or medical issue like we've heard, you know, that's a season, that's a time, and sometimes it's a lifetime, but in this case, these are really good examples of how you can make a purposeful decision to be present in the pain in order to serve And that love will continue to grow. Keep looking at the other person and say, what is the best spouse I can be for that person? Indeed. Keep uh, loving on them. Indeed. And uh, what are we looking at next? What are, what, what, what are you, what are you looking at for the next week or two where I I think we've hit the, hit the pain thing well? Um, Mm. What are we looking at down the road here with you, Deb? You know what? I ran into a gentleman here um, that is amazing. He is a young professional. He's an entrepreneur, has had much success um, in the business world, even working with sound and an organization called Pixar, of all places. Mm-hmm. And he is the quintessential millennial male, African-American, and has a very good argument of why not to be married. And what was great in that conversation, and I said, would you be willing to share this with a broader audience? And why am I saying that? Because if you flip the coin over and look at why people are saying not to get married, is part of the reason and the healing and the path toward why you should get married. So I'm going to throw that out as a little bit of a challenge. And if you're game, we're going to record that very soon, and we can bring that uh, to an open forum. I would love that. And as you know, we're we're both uh, connected to a project right now uh, that we can't get into deep detail with, but it has a lot to do with a, a, a test pilot in a couple of major markets in this country on trying to look at why and how we can get more people to get be getting married younger, having kids uh, that that uh, too many young people. As we know, Deb are just saying no to marriage because of what they view as the 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 burdens of marriage or what they've seen before in their own lives, and so mm-hmm. they they want to run away from it because they didn't experience anything pleasant on the marriage front. And uh, mm-hmm. I look forward to being able to discuss that with you as well, Deb Wolniak. As always, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lee. This is Lee Habib, and this is our American Stories. And you know, listening to that. Listening to that line of that wife telling the husband, he is a good man, the best man I've ever met. And I think every guy wants to have his wife say that about him. And then what he said about her, her her perseverance, 
I marvel at how she continues to move forward. And my goodness, he thanked her for the patience she afforded him because he hadn't really paid attention. And boy, that's, I think, a lot of us men not paying attention to things that matter, caught up in our work. This is Leigh Habib. This is Our American Stories. As always, Marriage on the Mind with Deb Wolniak. And you can call 844-627-8255. If there's a subject that's on your mind, something you want us to cover, you have a story about chronic pain, leave it there. And today, we get into the heart of the story of one of America's greatest storytellers. A lot of people don't know much about Mark Twain beyond the fact that their high school teachers compelled them to read The Adventures of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. But few of us know the story of how Mark Twain squandered away all of his money through a series of bad investments, then how he would dig himself out of debt. Today, we have the author of the book, Chasing the Last Laugh. Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour, and it's by author Richard Zacks, who is a best-selling New York Times author, author of The Pirate Hunter, among many others. And thanks for joining us today, Richard. Uh, great to be here. You bet. And, you know, I mentioned that uh, folks compelled us to read Mark Twain, and of all the things that we read that we were forced to read, this is one of the things most of us actually understood and loved. Before we even begin with the book, what is it about Mark Twain that you think connected to so many generations of readers? I think it's his humor and his, his uh, kind of child, childlike wonder and uh, mixed with cynicism. I mean, he did so many things. His range as a writer is about the most extreme you can imagine. To, to make fun of religion and then to uh, celebrate uh, a runaway slave. To I mean, his... It just boggles my mind. The more I read, the more I realized uh, how far he'd go in different directions and how human he was. I mean, how he, he was able to pinpoint, you know, human emotions about, about guilt and acceptance and generosity and greed. And, you know, it's kind of, you, you, if you paraphrase a Mark Twain story, it, it just kind of sits there and, and you feel like an idiot. And then you read it and you realize oh, my God, the expressions that he came up with and the way he said it, and, and it, it just feels, frankly, so American. Yeah, and you know, Mark Twain's books can't be pitched. I mean, if he were to pitch his book, <laughs> right. it would not end well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I was sort of surprised by that because, uh, you know, we'll get to it later, but he, he winds up telling about 30 of his best stories during this Round the World comedy tour. And so occasionally I would just try out on friends just paraphrasing 
what the thing was about. And, you know, I might say it's, uh, oh, he stole a watermelon and the watermelon was green and he tried to make the, uh, the farmer take it back. And it just, it sounds idiotic, yeah. you know, it just doesn't kind of, you know, but when he tells it, it's just the most amazing story or the, or the jumping frog. I mean, when you, you know, I don't want to blow any punchlines, but, but a lot of these, it, a lot of it's in the telling and he's just a master. Well, in fact, we're doing this summer, we're going to send a correspondent out for that frog jumping contest out in Calaveras County because Twain just understood the American psyche. He was like a, almost a Tocqueville type character. He understood the heartbeat of America and made us laugh about ourselves. Well, what I think is great, since you did bring up the jumping frog, um, it's kind of a perfect segue, because people didn't realize about the private Mark Twain. The private Mark Twain, I mean, that was the first story that put him on the map. That was the one that made the National Magazine. That's the one that got him his first book deal. And he understood gambling because he was an inveterate gambler. (laughs) He was just so addicted to risk. And, you know, People, people write up the Mark Twain, and they talk about literary this and that and, you know, uh, religion and King Leopold and all those other things. But this man loved to gamble, and he loved to gamble on pool, and he loved to play poker, and he would bet on things. And, and that's kind of what leads into my whole story, because this side of his personality made him want to gamble on making huge amounts of money. Yeah, and, indeed. And by the way, gambling, for, for those of us who like it, and I love a great poker game. America loves a great poker game. <laughs> but what do we love? It's not just the risk, Richard. It's the camaraderie. It's the jokes. It's the tells. It's the games and the gamesmanship. It basically amplifies all of the things in life, takes us out of our boring lives, and it's almost a heightened reality that we wish we could live in more often. Yeah, I agree with you, because all of life is some kind of risk. I mean, you just cross the street and you're risking. You drive 75 instead of 45, you're risking. But what I love, I did a piece a long time ago about a book namer, a bookmaker named Bob the Man Martin, and he said, the greatest thrill in life is winning a bet. The second greatest thrill is losing one. <laughs> it's so true. You know what I mean? Like, people who don't gamble don't understand that. They think I'm just trying to, like, show off with some quote or something. But it's, you want action. I mean, I sometimes only bet, like, five bucks on a, on a football game, and then I can watch Northern Illinois play <laughs> Duquesne, and I care about that game. That's so true. You know? That is so, so true. And people just don't get that. And Twain, oh, God, he really got it. He was addicted. <laughs> yeah, and some people can get in trouble from gambling, and some people can just enjoy it. Well, the same with alcohol. And so yeah. it's like all things in the end. One or two more things. I mean, we're obviously spending some time on the book. But I want to just dig in a little bit more to Twain and his writing. Because he busted all conventions. Right. I mean, this was not a guy who used proper grammar. This wasn't a guy who the, the, the fancy pants in right. New York City would think, my goodness, this is the next Proust or this is our right. Proust. I mean, talk about Mark Twain as a writer and what conventions he just busted. Well, what I think is so amazing is, is people don't realize that for the first 60 years of his life, he was known as a funny travel writer. I mean, everyone wants to forget that, all the people that write the essays at the universities. you know, He was known for Innocence Abroad, which was a groundbreaking travel book that basically made fun of all the pretentious travelers to Europe. I mean, it is, it, it <laughs> so about, you know, break, oh man, I don't know if you've read it all recently, but it's, it's laugh out loud funny. I mean, after the first 30 pages, they're a little slow, and then after that, it just flies. But he does things like, he keeps torturing like the guides in Italy when they start getting all passionate about the statues, and Twain will say, is he dead yet? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Or like the boatmen uh, who are charging excessively to cross like the, the, the uh, Sea of Galilee. He says, um, uh, Twain says, now I know why Jesus learned to walk on water. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So I mean, true. 
Right. So he he was groundbreaking, and he he I don't know if people realize, but he started by basically being a, a travel writer, and they he did well enough. They sent him to what was then the Sandwich Islands, which was Hawaii, and he wrote. <laughs> his stuff is so irreverent. I mean, he basically makes cannibal jokes all over the place. I mean, he was kind of unpolished at the time. But um, he came back and gave these, these basically stand-up comedy, and he'll actually, he turns to the audience and says, does anyone have a baby I can use? You know, and they know it's a cannibal joke. You yep. Know? And, yep. I mean, so, yeah, he, he was great. And by the way, as is the case with so many things, the reason what you did when telling the story to others is great comedy is always about words falling next to other words. It's music, it's timing, it's so much more. When we come back, Richard Zacks, the book Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. More after these messages. American Stories. You're listening to Chris Stapleton's former band, The Steel Drivers. And as Americana as Americana gets. And nothing is more American than Mark Twain. The writing of Mark Twain. The life of Mark Twain, frankly. And we're talking to author Richard Zacks. His great new book, Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. And while we were in the break, Richard, you had asked about just sharing one more story about, well... Share it with our audience I where we left to off. I tell you, you know, he, yes, he's, he was known for comedy, and he, was known, and he was known a little bit as a young adult writer, but he really wanted to be a literary author. And it's, he wanted to be like Henry James and Edith Wharton on some level. He wanted all that praise, which just today, you know, kind of cracks us up because he got it all through Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. But he was actually trying to do i mean i think of it as kind of like john stewart doing that movie rosewater right it's a little a little bit of a slow movie it's a very you know praiseworthy endeavor that he was trying to do but it's like no matter how good you are at one thing you want to be something else and and the other part of him that wanted to be something else is he had grown up so poor he just wanted to be as rich as rockefeller he wanted to be rich as a vanderbilt which kind of leads into the whole rest of the story here. Indeed. And I, I find it particularly with comics, who at one point or another just want to be taken seriously. Right. And I, we're just preparing for a Tom Hanks hour coming down the road. And Tom Hanks was at this critical juncture in his life where he just didn't want to do another movie with a dog and him yeah. being a goofball. And, and if you remember, his agent got him a script, which he took for nothing. And the movie was Philadelphia. And yeah. though he worked at, you know, scale... It changed his life, and people began to take him seriously. And I think the same with Robin Williams, who did some remarkable straight acting. And it showed people that there was more than a red ball at the end of a guy's nose. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, Twain, Twain pulled it off, too, but he eventually had to discover he could do it through satire, you know, through really dark humor. I mean, he couldn't do it by his Joan of Arc. I mean, I don't think anyone of your listeners should bother reading it personally, but... You know, he was trying to write this high literary thing, and he didn't pull it off, but that's fine. No, and Oscar Wilde suffered the same thing. I mean, uh, no disrespect to his, his attempt at the same thing, but we remember him for the importance of being earnest. We yeah. remember him for his humor and his, and his wit and his satire. Totally. 
Um, yeah, Mark Twain, he, was, see, he wrote a line, something like a classic, a book that everyone buys and no one reads. Right. You know, and everyone thinks, well, how could he do that? Because he wrote these classics. He can't mean it. Well, at the time he wrote it, he was bitter because <laughs> his books were not considered classics. Right, right. Yeah. And, and luckily now they are. He wasn't around to really ever recognize that. Now, you've studied the man's whole life, Richard. Right. What were some of the more surprising things you found out about Mark Twain? Well, I would say, uh, you know, I didn't know how much he liked to drink, smoke, curse, and gamble. I mean, that's like the Emirates, the beyond the trifecta. What do we have when it's four things? I mean, he... Superfecta. Uh, that's a superfecta. <laughs> yeah, I gamble. Yeah. I love the races. So I know what a Quinella is. I know it all, Richard. <laughs> okay. Superfecta, man. Yep. So he, 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 you know, I mean, and what I, I love all that about him. I mean, he was really one of the most flawed human beings, and that's what you know, gives him all that humanity, you know, that, that he liked to do all those things. And then to make it even better, he married the most proper woman. You know, it's kind of like Margaret Dumont back in the Marx Brothers right. movies or something. I yeah. mean, Livy was an heiress in a provincial town of Elmira, New York, and she thought there were ways that you had it. She, she got mad at him for, like, not bowing properly to noblemen, you know. I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of, it's this wonderful comedy that's behind the scenes. So, oh. I think it may, his maxims are, and all those great one-liners are kind of like he distilled it from his life, and that's what's kind of interesting. Well, and the last thing Mark Twain needed is to be married to someone like Mark Twain, and I think the same for his exactly. wife. What an awful marriage that would have been. Tell me more about his business investments and his inventions. He's almost like a Ralph <laughs> Cramden type of guy. That's perfect. How did he lose all his money? Well, before we get to that, I want some of the inventions because they're just, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, he, he, he invented special clamps so that toddlers couldn't kick the blankets off of their beds. Bed clamps he thought he was going to make money on. He got a patent for that. He, um, he invented a history game that had um, all these, uh, you know, all the questions, who are the kings of England and all the rest of it. But he didn't take time on the board, and it used push pins. So basically it destroyed the board every time you played it, you know. He just... He was all over the map. On the other hand, he did make one invention that actually did well for him, uh, the Mark Twain scrapbook. It's pretty much been forgotten, but he's the first guy to think that you could do dried strips of glue on a page and then moisten them with a sponge or a rag and then put the photograph or the card or the newspaper clipping into the scrapbook. And he patented it. And it, it would have made him a ton of money, but he picked a con man to market it for him, this guy named Dan Sloat. And uh, Sloat wound up going bankrupt like three times and not paying Twain what he was supposed to get. But uh, Twain once wrote one time, when he, after he got a royalty check, he said, my blank book makes more than my written ones. <laughs> hey, that's the thing about being a businessman. I mean, in the end, you've got to have great business instincts, pick your vendors right. And this right. may not have been Mark Twain's great talent. No, it really wasn't. And he, the trouble was he had this moonshot enthusiasm and he had no patience for details. So he would just get so excited about some, some new invention or something that he would hear about. So the way he lost his money was ba basically two, two areas. Um, the page typesetter, which was, you know, he grew up as he had been a printer's devil. He'd been one of those guys that had to take those tiny bits of metal and drop them in so that the newspaper could be printed, you know, a little each letter, individual. And he just thought if anyone could automate that, it would be worth a fortune. And he was absolutely right. The trouble was there were about 30 different main guys trying to do it, and the one he picked did not win, you know. He picked uh, James Page, and he said Page, uh, Page uh, you know, he could, he could talk, a, talk a fish to t come out of water and take a walk with him, you know. He, he just... Uh, a hustler. 
he was a hustler, yeah. you know. And at first, uh, Twain called him the Shakespeare of mechanical invention, which was great. Twain would write for places like the Atlantic, and he would talk up these guys, you know. Meanwhile, he was investing in them at the same time, you know. <laughs> he did it later again. That's, oh, so, that's a little bit of a hustle there, right, as we speak. Yeah. yeah. Set yeah, the yeah. scene for me surrounding then his bankruptcy, but I think we're already getting an idea of why he went bankrupt. Uh, but he, he, he went bankrupt in 1894. Right. How did he react to this, and... How did the country react? Because this was a very public thing. Right. It was, it was, he had kept it a complete secret. And, the, and he, what, what bankrupt was actually his publishing company. He had he'd done a tricky thing. He had created his own publishing company, but he named it after his uh, nephew, Charles Webster. So not everyone knew that it was Mark Twain's own publishing company. So he had kind of insulated himself from any of the problems. And then in 1894, it went bankrupt. And there were headlines, Mark Twain fails, no joke. And, you know, he, it was so humiliating because he had always sold, you know, basically he was a good talker and he had sold himself as a brilliant businessman, as his own publisher, as, a, you know, the guy. And he still thought the page typesetter was going to, it wound up being Mergen Taylor's linotype. The linotype took over, but he, he still thought page might win out. So this was just so unbelievably humiliating for him. And he went to Europe. He could no longer afford to live in his own home in Hartford, which is just amazing. And rather than he had seven servants at the time, including a, a black butler, um, instead of cutting back on the servants and just living there quietly, they couldn't stand the shame and the wealthy community of doing that. So they went to Europe in 1891. And uh, they didn't they didn't move back permanently for um, for nine years. How old so, was he when this happened, Richard? Uh, he was, let's see, 1835, so he was 59, 58. He was in his late 50s. And that's tough when it happens yeah, at, at that age. He, think about it. He was, he was considered, you know, the greatest funny travel writer. He was the maker of speeches. He was, you know, he was on his way. A lot of people did take his literary stuff seriously. So, and he was just, he was very, very successful. And then this was so humiliating. And he, and he took it, you know, he tried to put a good spin on it. But there are lines in his, in his private notebooks where he just talks about hell and, 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 you know, the poor house. And he actually talks about suicide. I mean, he says that, that his wife's forbidden him. But that's how dark it got for him. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about his wife. We're going to talk about what he did uh, as it relates to all the people he owed money to and how he got himself out of this mess. It's actually a really remarkable story, Richard. And thanks for writing this. And a, a side note, uh, you know, what, what Twain was going through when he was 60... Uh, I think you're just dead right. I mean, this is that was the life expectancy of human beings right then at that time, Richard. Oh, it, was, it was just brutal to have it happen at that. I mean, at 30 or something, you know, you roll with it. And you keep, you got like, time. Sam Walton went bankrupt at, in his late 30s, I think. You know, yeah. the Walton stores failed, you know. But, yep. yeah, but 60, oof. Really rough. And, by the way, you know, a couple of decades later when Wall Street collapses, people just jump out of windows. I mean, this is, the I think, the number one cause of suicide for men is financial failure. Right. Uh, and, and we know this. And so when we come back, let's dig into the, the rest of the story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. Go to Amazon. Order this book now. It makes a great, great gift for a father, for a reader, for a mother, for a friend. And you'll laugh a lot. I promise. You'll laugh a lot. And then you'll want to pick up the Twain catalog. And when we come back, I'm also going to tell Richard about one of my favorite Mark Twain essays about, well, someone passing gas in front of the Queen of Elizabeth, the, uh, Queen Elizabeth. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories. 
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Richard Zacks, author of Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. And when we left off, Mark Twain was staring down bankruptcy. He was old. He was 60, tired, disappointed, dead broke. What happens next, Richard? Well, he has to do something he really didn't want to do. He has to do a round-the-world lecture tour. They called it lectures, but it really was stand-up comedy And when he did it. And um, everyone thinks of Mark Twain as loving to do, you know, it's the Hal Holbrook thing, loving to do public speeches and all the rest of it. He actually uh, dreaded it. He, um, he thought that people he treated, you know, thought of him as a clown. He said, once an audience sees you stand on your head, they expect you to remain in that position. Right. And, you know, right. here he was trying to become more of a literary figure. And, you know, he's 60. He's not, you know, it's not. And he had to go and make people laugh. So here he is miserable from losing all his money. And we didn't even talk about it. He lost his wife's money. I mean, oh. I, don't, I don't know if you're married or not, but losing my wife's money, that scares me. <laughs> uh, luckily, my wife didn't have any money in her family, so I, I can never get jammed up like that, Richard. Oh, you know, that's actually really good. Lucky he, me. He, he inherited, uh, I mean, his wife inherited the equivalent of, you know, millions of dollars. She was a coal heiress, and her father died suddenly the first year of their marriage, and he moved into a mansion thanks to that. And uh, he succeeded in basically losing, <laughs> losing just about all her money. Oh, know? so he lost his money and her money. That's just uh, brutal. Whose idea was this tour, Richard? Uh, it was his idea. I mean, he, he knew that the only, back then, if you think about it, there's no radio, there's no TV, there's no internet, obviously. There's none, there's none of those things. The way you made the biggest money was people coming to a theater. And some of the highest paid people of that era were the actors. And uh, Twain knew that he could make, uh, I mean, the highest paid were like the musicians. Um, there was, um, uh, what's his name with all the hair, the Polish uh, piano, blah. anyhow. So, um, Twain knew the biggest, you know, he could charge a dollar a head, and a dollar was then uh, a day's wage to come and hear him talk. So that was the way. And, and he knew that he, he couldn't just do the United States. He, he thought that he needed to, uh, you know, do the whole British Empire, wherever they spoke English. So it was this incredibly ambitious speaking tour. Yeah, where did he go, and how long was he out there? He was out there for, um, for one year, basically, and he went to 71 different cities, he did 122 nights of performing. He would, you know, back then we forget how you travel. He was 100 nights at sea in order to, to go to all those places. He had to take, you know, a boat from the West Coast to Australia and a boat from Australia to India. And um, he, uh, he played small theaters in the United States, and then he played a lot larger ones once, once, once he left. Um, he, the, um, he got in so much trouble with the bankruptcy that he literally had to change his tour because he was liable to be sued in the state of New York. So he had to leave New York State. And he was a little worried that anywhere in the United States they might take his, his uh, lecture, his, you know, the money from the, uh, the audience, and put it towards his debts. So he was pretty eager. To, and he never said, I'm running away. But he, he wanted to get out of the U.S., and he didn't want to return until he could know that no sheriff could, could you know, take any of the money. And he was unique in his approach to to stand-up comedy, and that is, he didn't just do punchlines and running jokes. I mean, he told funny stories. Right. You have one on page 182, uh, okay. the one about growing old. Share that with us, if you could, Richard. Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to. He, um, he, he, it was after, it was late one night, and he was in Australia. He was in a club in Melbourne, and he mentions that, I'm, I'm going to try and do it. Here we go. Right. Um, my, my friend on the right and I were talking just now about growing old. 
I said, I thought that if I had created the human race, and then everyone laughs, you know, and someone yelled out, you did some of them. Um, <laughs> oh, I could have done it, he says back. Um, I was asked nothing about it, and I didn't suggest anything. But I thought if I had created the human race and had discovered that they were a kind of failure and had drowned them out, well, I would recognize that that was a good thing. <laughs> and then fortified by experience, I would start the thing on a different plan. I would have no more of that 99 years business from the Old Testament. I wouldn't let people grow that old. I would cut them off at 30 because a man's youth is the thing he loves to think about. And it's the thing that he regrets. It is the one part of his life that he most thoroughly enjoys. My friend on the right suggests that we go as far as 40 years, as he doesn't want any of his 40 years rubbed out. Well, perhaps you really might go up to 40, because then you get a perspective upon youth. And that has its values. That has its charm. But, oh, dear me, I never would have created age. Age has its own value. But that is to other people, not to those who have it. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. And, and, and what you're getting there is that it's the Twain genius. He's talking about something very serious. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. always, always using that wit. Uh, tell but, me this. When he was doing the tour, Richard, what, what, was, what were his intentions as related to the debts he owed? Talk well, about that and Livy's role in this as well. Sure. Um, but maybe we could just hit a little on his, his delivery style, just because I think it's so unusual. Absolutely. We, uh, yeah. He, no, I mean, I didn't deliver that the way he would have because I think I, I, I couldn't, and I'd put you to sleep. But he, he did it with, with um, a slow, slow voice. And he did long pauses. And he just stood there without smiling. He never smiled. Nobody ever remembers him laughing hard at anyone else's joke. He was one of those comics that never laughed at anyone else's materials. And he, put, he sometimes even put his jaw on his hand and just, just stood there. And it takes a while. But if you start reading his speeches and you read them that way, they're way funnier. Yeah. But it's just... It's just really hard to do and really unusual. The only person I can think of is like Stephen Wright. I was just you know? about to say Stephen Wright because that was the thing. You'd look at, if you'd ever read those one-liners, I mean, they're okay, but right. you watch him deliver them. They're so deadpan and it's so slow. I mean, it's like paint drying slow. He said breakfast anytime. So I ordered French toast from the Renaissance. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So Twain, Twain's delivery really is at the heart of it. So all the people, all the critics would afterwards say, God, I loved his performance, but it's until they invent some way of recording and showing all at the same time, there'll be no, no one can ever explain why this was so great. And, and uh, we have the transcripts, a lot of the speeches, and, and that was a little bit of a challenge trying to get across. So I had to put in a lot of bits about the newspapers would actually write in where people laughed and where he paused. And that helps a lot to try and, try and get, get it uh, well, can you imagine, Richard, trying to explain to people through a transcript the epic hits that Rodney Dangerfield did on the Johnny Carson show on yeah. paper? I mean, it's a, it's a waste. Yeah, it is. Stand-up comedy, really. Like, I just went to a Louis C.K. at Madison Square Garden, and it was amazing. But if I saw the transcript of that, I probably would just go, what? That's funny. You that's know? what I paid for? That's yeah. what I paid for? Yeah, so that, that's a little bit of a challenge. But luckily, I had a lot of Twain's notebooks and Twain's, um, you know, he wrote a travel, travel book about this whole thing. So I had a lot of things that he meant to be read, as well as the speeches. You know. So basically, for the speeches, he took 30 of his best stories 
that he had basically been telling for the last 30 years, and he, he cherry-picked, um, you know, five- to ten-minute bits. You know, one goes as long as 15 or so, but, and he would just, he would deliver six or seven of them every night and just stand there and tell these stories, and he was so unusual. I mean, they were so kind of droll and also really smart, and they were so American. They were about buying his first horse, and they were about the jumping frog, and they were about stealing a watermelon, and they played incredibly well around the world. Well, when we come back, we'll close out this hour with Richard Zacks, and we'll talk about what ends up happening. I mean, does he pay off his debts? Uh, what happens to his psychological state? Does he end up being happy again, or at least something resembling happy? And we'll talk a little bit more of this whole idea of the man having to go out and make people laugh for a living. It's a hard living, folks, by the way. Think of the number of comedians who end up killing themselves. It's really, really staggering. You're out there alone, and you got to make people laugh no matter what mood you're in. And, well, no one takes you seriously at a certain age, at a certain time in your life. Especially a guy like Twain who was looking for status, wanted to be wealthy, and seen of as important. This had to be tough, even as he was succeeding and, well, trying to pay down those debts. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Chasing the Last Laugh. Richard Zacks is the author. Buy it on Amazon. It'll make a great, great gift. American Stories. We continue with Richard Zacks and his book, Chasing the Last Laugh. So Mark, Mark Twain is traveling around the world. Richard, how did people overseas take to Twain? You know, Jerry Seinfeld has written about and talked about how hard it is to take comedy from one culture to another because so much of humor has to do with cultural references and cultural knowledge. How did he do overseas? Uh, he he was a huge hit. I mean, he did tailor a little of his um, material. He wrote a poem about um, you know about Australia that was the most ridiculous poem. He he chose the um, platypus as the Australian national animal, and uh, you know he he just uh, he was just an enormous hit. I'd say ninety five percent of all the critical reviews are uh, are positive. I'd say he sold out about ninety five percent of the venues. Uh, he just. He just did incredibly well, and he was basically treated like royalty by the wealthy people and by the, the, the local artists, and uh, you know that was also really nice for him and Livy and his one daughter that went with him. He had to love that, actually. I mean, that's yeah. in the end what he was chasing was that respect, respect. and that he status. Got, absolutely, and he got, he, you know what, he was almost a bigger literary figure in the British Empire on some level than he was at home. Um, it's hard to believe, but they had uh, some, some British critics had just loved Huckleberry Finn and his early travel book. Uh, he wrote one that included, you know, where British travelers tended to travel in, in Germany and in Europe. And uh, it was just, it was a huge success. And, uh, but I just want to tell you about what I think what's one of the best celebrity perks any traveling, you know, performer has ever gotten. Yep. Um, they set aside 35 miles of the Darjeeling Himalayan Railroad 
and let him use it as a personal roller coaster. Get out. Yeah, yeah. And he just had a six-seater hand car, and they just going down. I mean, these were steep hills. There were four zigzags that they had to reverse the direction of the car in order to get down. The hill was so steep. They had four horizontal loops where you go loop around through tunnels. And Twain just called call it the absolute best day of the trip and one of the best days of his life. And uh, he just loved the idea of his wife and daughter sitting there. No one mentioned seatbelts. So he's sitting there in these open cars on canvas back seats that are bolted down, going down the Himalayas. You know, it was just, it was great. And by the way, at 60, this just proves his affection for risk, Richard. He's totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yeah. shows it. Yeah. So the, tour, so the tour is a hit and people are wanting to know, how's he doing on that debt paying thing? Right, and, and he's not really saying clear out because he's too smart to give him a straight answer. And basically what happens is he goes to London to write the book, and uh, rumors start swirling that, um, that he's, he's living alone in poverty. And then you know, one newspaper wants to beat another, and one says that Twain has died in poverty. So uh, this is when he, he has, says his famous line, they sent a reporter, and the reporter, it, the mission was send 500 words if Twain... Um, dying in poverty, send a thousand words if Twain dead. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and then he said that, uh, that, let me see if I can get it right here. He said that, um, that uh, his cousin, James Ross Clemens, was ill. The report of my illness grew out of his illness. The report of my death was an exaggeration. <laughs> that's great. And, and that's the one. So anyhow, so he, he, um, he didn't pay it off from the trip. A lot of people, a lot of scholars have written that he paid it off from the trip. He basically made maybe half at most from the trip. And a lot of that was because Livy, he thought Livy had to stay in the best hotel everywhere and travel first class everywhere because she was an heiress. So he literally squandered a lot of his money by, because um, back then performers paid their own expenses. Yeah. Um, and um, so then he had to write a travel book. So there he was in London, and he was, you know, actually, I mean, we didn't really have time to talk about it. He had a family tragedy, so he was in an absolutely dreadful, dark mood, and he still had to write a funny travel book. And, uh, but he did it, and um, the book sold, sold well, and that paid off the rest of his debt. And then he, he, he had, his other daughter got epilepsy right around this time, and so they stayed in Europe another year to try and see if they could cure her. He wanted to come home with her healthy and all his debts paid, but, but she, you know, you can't cure it like that. So anyhow, he comes home in October, 1900 to an absolute hero's welcome. And so this story has a very happy ending. He was just acclaimed as, I mean, 1893 was basically like a depression. They call it panic of 1893. And everyone was, I mean, I use the word hiding behind bankruptcy laws, taking advantage of bankruptcy laws, everyone phrase it. Mark Twain did not. He paid off his debts. And I'm telling you, that was an inspiration to common Americans, to, to just to everyone, that he, he didn't do the Wall Street thing. He didn't do the high finance. He, Mark Twain, our beloved writer, paid his debts. And he came home and, and just was incredibly warmly embraced. He just had un, unlimited opportunities to speak and to write and to do, do anything he wanted. And uh, he had a, a friend, H.H. H. Rogers, who was uh, a big investor and a man at um, Standard Oil. And uh, he took, when Twain finally built a, a nest egg again, he took that nest egg for Twain and he tripled it for him just over a couple months, just because there was no such thing as insider trading in 1890. Right, 90s. right. Didn't come till 1934. So anyhow, Twain gets literary fame. He gets, he gets all the money back. You know, things go well. But was he happy? Was Twain ever happy? Eh, I don't of course, know. Of you know? course. He's a, if yeah. you're a comedy writer and you're a writer, yeah. happiness is, well, 
That's a silly term almost of art. Right. And uh, let's talk about that stop in India. Talk about Twain's adventures there. Uh, okay, Twain, it, you know, he was, he had, we hadn't really mentioned that how sick he was a lot of the trip. He was sick about uh, 4 to 30, 40 days out of this trip. He had um, terrible bronchitis, which might have had something to do with him smoking 20 cigars a day. But um, he uh, also had uh, these, these boils on his body. They called call them carbuncles. So he had been sick. And so when he gets to India, he's sick the first two weeks, and you just think, oh, it's just not going to be a very exciting time for him. Well, he thought India was the carnival. He just loved it. He, you know, seen the, the, the snake charmers and the, uh, the holy men on beds and nails and, you know, the women with the midriff showing. And uh, Twain absolutely loved India. And, uh, yeah, he, I mean, I don't know. Just, how did the Indian, how did the Indians, Indian people react to him? Well, that's the thing. Um, they didn't really know who he was. You know, I mean, it's a, you know, they're, they're, I think it was only like 250,000 white British you know, soldiers and administrators basically govern the, the country. Right. Most of them recognized him. But, you know, Twain, you know, as much as he claimed to be bothered by it, he had a very unusual hairstyle. In that era, nobody wore their, their hair quite like that. Every, every reviewer comments on the hair because it was such a bushy, curly thing. You mess. Know? It, was it was such a mess. Such a mess, yeah. right. Right. That's who I was thinking. Paderewski was another person with, you know, a mess of a hair that was really popular. Um, so Twain, Twain loved India. And he, 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 you know, went sightseeing and, you know, in, in his travel book, he, he makes fun of um, the missionaries, uh, the Christian missionaries there. He said they've had no luck converting the Hindus, but they've converted four monkeys with 11 more hopefully interested. <laughs> that's, that's tough. That is tough. Yeah. And that's the thing. He pulled no punches. And, and nobody back then was doing what he was doing, were they, Richard? No, not really. He, he, he pushed it, and then he really pushed it with his you know, satire later. And Livy didn't want him to publish a lot of it, but that's who she was. And, you know, he, he, he did wind up, you know, eventually, especially after she passed in 1904, you know, more of it came out. Now, he got settled finally. He's back in the United States. His dear friend, who's a, a, a real great businessman and investor, makes a lot more money from him. Does Twain learn, or does he gamble again? What happens before this all ends? Oh, man. So Twain gets back. He's now wealthy again, and uh, he can afford to live at home, buys another house. Um, and, uh, of course, he invests again, and he gambles again. And um, he get, invests in a thing called plasmon, which is a, a protein powder that's made from, you know, leftover dairy products. And uh, he loses like $30,000 on that. And uh, Which was real money back then. Yeah, 30 times 30, that's basically a million. Yep. So a guy who's finally gotten himself back in order again. I mean, his whole estate, when he, when he passed, is depending on how you value the books, you could value it as low as 200000 So to lose 30000 is a lot of money. You bet. You know? Uh, yeah, so he's still, he still he can't get over the book. And and H H Rogers, his his investor friend, tried really hard to get him to stop stop investing. You know, at one point Twain Twain wrote him, "I've landed a big fish today." He found somebody that could um, duplicate uh, designs for uh, clothing with some kind of you know early photocopy right. type machine, and he wanted to just sink everything into that. I mean, he was he's a little out of control. Yeah, well, uh, and again, I, as I as I heard about this story and started poking around. I just kept thinking of Ralph Cramden in the sense that Ralph represented in the Honeymooners that every man who always had some big idea and his poor wife had to deal with it, and none of them ever panned out. Right. 
Well, I, I, uh, when, when my wife and I got married, um, I actually quoted from the Honeymooners in the wedding vows. I said, he was, uh, Ralph had some future advice for his brother-in-law, Stanley. He said, said, Stanley, when Agnes says I do, that's the last decision you allow her to make. <laughs> I'm the king of my castle. Yeah, Remember that? I'm the king of my castle. My father-in-law comes up, future father-in-law comes up to me and shakes my hand and says, uh, you don't think you're going to get away with that stuff with my daughter, do you? <laughs> I said, no, sir. She gave me permission to say it. <laughs> oh, you can't beat it. Well, Richard, thanks so much for doing this, and what a great project. What a great read, Chasing the Last Laugh. And, folks, go to Amazon.com and get it. It's Chasing the Last Laugh. Again, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. The writer, Richard Zacks, and the writer he's writing about, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, American fiction writer and the funniest, Mark Twain. This is Our American Stories. Thanks so much for joining us, Richard. Hey, thanks a lot. You bet. And you can get all of our work at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We've done hours on everybody from Frank Sinatra to Amart Ertigan, and not many folks can say they do that kind of thing. Take it out with some great American music. <laughs>